We'll please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word this morning. We began our study of 1 Samuel last Lord's Day, and we intend to walk through 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. So we'll be in these books for some time. And as I explained last Lord's Day, this is a significant study for us as God's people. Uh, Historically, it's important for us because uh, we see the establishment of the kingdom of King David, uh, which points towards the establishment of our Messiah and our King Jesus. And so understanding the history of David's story is important uh, for understanding the gospel. Uh, But it's also important because when we come to 1 Samuel, uh, we come to a day and age of the judges uh, where the scripture tells us at the end of the book of Judges, Judges 21-25, that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, We have in this setting, very similar to what we have in our community, our culture, our country, our world today, uh, a culture that is without God. A culture who does what is right in their own eyes. And so we learn as we study, for example, Hannah's story in 1 Samuel chapter 1, what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of a people who are not faithful. And so it's a very timely study for us, as well as an important one for us to understand. Now, last Lord's Day, we looked at what the events were that led up to the birth of Samuel. Uh, We learned about his mother, Hannah, and how uh, she was barren. She was married to Elkanah. Uh, Elkanah, we saw in that first part of chapter 1, is not a picture of biblical faithfulness. In fact, uh, he marries Hannah, whom the scripture says he loved. But we see that then when she's unable to have children, he went and married a second wife. Something that God's word never encourages, never endorses. In fact, it, it brings great strife and great trouble. And that's exactly what we see in Hannah's life. Uh, She has this second wife of her husband who mocks her, who scorns her for not having children. And in her barrenness, she seeks the Lord. Uh, She receives bad advice from her husband, Elkanah. And even the priest at the temple initially, as she's there praying, uh, writes her off as just a drunken woman. And yet what we saw in last week's passage is a picture of biblical faithfulness. Of one who was trusting God in the midst of a godless culture. One who was seeking God's will even when she was receiving poor advice. And we see God answer her petition. And so we left off at verse 20 in 1 Samuel 1 where we read about God giving her what she had asked for. A son whom she named Samuel. And so today we're going to pick up in verse 21 as we now look at the vow that Hannah made to the Lord. You'll remember she said if the Lord would give her a son, she would commit that son to the Lord's service. And we're going to see how she fulfills that vow and honors that vow in today's passage. And so out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read today's passage for us. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. This is what the holy inspired word of God says. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull 
an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He has lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. If you would pray with me. Father, this is your word to us. Empower us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to understand it, to live according to it. Lord, help us today to see where we are not honoring you, where we are not following you, where we are not surrendering to you. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, lead us to repentance and to faith. Help us to be the ambassadors of the gospel you called us to be. Help us to be lights in the darkness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things we've been doing a, a little bit differently during this time of transition is uh, we do most of our singing after the sermon, but uh, we've started to sing at least one hymn there before the sermon. And today we sang a very, uh, hopefully, familiar hymn to many of you, How Firm a Foundation. It's a, a hymn that has a great history as well as a bit of mystery. Uh, historically, it's a hymn that was first published in 1787 and became so well in loved that it was sung at the funerals of two U.S. presidents, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, it was sung by American troops who were engaged in the Spanish-American War on Christmas morning, 1898. It was a favorite of General Robert E. Lee and was sung at his funeral as well. But perhaps I believe more importantly than those events, it is a hymn that has been sung by millions of believers all around the world for two centuries now. And yet there is a bit of mystery to it because we don't know exactly who wrote this hymn. When it was first published, it was simply attributed to a letter, the letter K. And so there's been much discussion and research on who K might have been. We're not really sure who wrote the hymn, but we're sure of what the hymn tells us. There is great certainty as to what this anonymous author was communicating about our God and the foundation we have in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Again, that first stanza, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? It's a reminder to us and has been a reminder to the people of God for centuries about the sure foundation we have in the word of God and in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It is a reminder to us that from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation that there is one story being told. It is the foundation that is being laid of our faith which rests in the gospel of Jesus. It's a picture, you might consider it this way, of, of when you were to lay concrete and you put rebar through that concrete. That rebar strengthens and secures and it, it binds all those things together. And what we see is that there's a rebar running through the word of God, pointing us to the gospel of Jesus, being fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus. And we see it from beginning to end. We, we see it in Hannah's story. We, we see a familiar picture here. Madison this morning read for us from Genesis that 
part of that picture where you see Abraham offering up his beloved son, this child of promise, as an offering to the Lord. We come to 1 Samuel and what do we see? We see Hannah offering up this child of promise, this child that the Lord gave her and offering that child to the Lord. And ultimately these point us to the gospel of Jesus where God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where our Father God offered up his son Jesus on the cross. Except there would be no substitute for Jesus for he was the substitute for us. That this picture of the gospel runs from beginning to end. And we see it here in these verses we've looked at this morning. As we look to these verses and we see this picture of the gospel, we're also reminded of what it is to have faith in the midst of a faithless culture. That there are lessons we can learn here from Hannah and from her faithfulness. And so in our time this morning, I want us to look at three things that we learn from Hannah's faithfulness. And I put these there in your outline, beginning with the first one. We learn that we need to take our word as seriously as God does. Take your word as seriously as God does. We see this in the fulfillment of the vow that Hannah made to the Lord. In verses 21 and 22, we see that some time has passed now since verse 19. Hannah had gone to the temple and Eli had heard her prayer and after some confusion understood it. And then he communicated. Remember, the priest was that mediator from God to man and from man to God. And so he communicates to her, inspired by the Lord, that this promise would be fulfilled, that her petition would be fulfilled, that she would have a child. The scripture simply tells us that some time passed. So we don't know how long that time was between when she received that word and when she conceived that child. But what we do know is that upon receiving that word, immediately everything changed for Hannah. Her entire countenance changed. She now had joy. Why? Because she had the promise to hold on to. We talked about last Lord's Day how important it is for us believers to hold on to the promises of God. Even when we don't know when they're going to be fulfilled or how they're going to be fulfilled, we're called to hold on to those promises. And so we see a picture of that here with Hannah. This time goes by and now she has this child and now this child is growing and the scripture tells us that Elkanah her husband he's going up to make his yearly offering but Hannah says she's going to stay behind why well we read about it in verse 22 Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband as soon as the child is weaned I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever now remember Hannah had made a vow And this vow was that her child would be committed to the service of the Lord. This child would be there at the temple. He would be in service at the temple. And so she says she's not going to go to the temple with her son until he stays there. Now this shows us and gives us some insight to how serious she was taking her vow. Because you can imagine what it would have been for Hannah to take this infant child Samuel up to the temple. And as she would go into the temple to remember this vow she had made to God that this child would live there forever. But then she would take that child back with her. And after doing that a few times, that would probably condition Hannah with this thought of, well, maybe one more year and I'll leave him there. Or maybe one more year and I'll leave him there. But no, she is committed 
that the first time she walks into the temple to make her offering with Samuel, she's going to fulfill her vow and she's going to leave Samuel there. And this would be at the time when this child was weaned, which contextually, culturally, probably in this context would have been at least after the age of three. But just consider what was going on here with Hannah, the commitment she had to her vow. You see, Hannah could have gone back on her word. She made this vow to God. She made this promise to God. But there actually was kind of a loophole there in the law for the Israelites where she could have gone back on her word. See, according to Numbers 30, a husband could nullify a vow his wife made to the Lord. And in that case, the Lord would not hold the husband or the wife accountable for not fulfilling that vow. And so there was a loophole here. You might imagine it in a in a context today. Let's say, for example, husbands, uh, your wife went out without your knowledge, without really talking to you about it, and she went out and she bought a brand new SUV and got a loan for that SUV. And imagine there was a law like this on the book where if you found out about this, that you could nullify that arrangement and you could say, well, no, we're we're not going to repay that loan, but in this context, in this case, you got to keep the car. Now imagine if that existed how often that would be taken advantage of. Imagine how many people would leave that dealership with a vehicle they never intended to pay for. How many phone calls those car salesmen would get from husbands saying, well, I didn't know anything about this. We're not paying for this, but we're keeping it. If there was a law like that, a loophole like that, you can imagine how it would get taken advantage of. What we learn as we study the Gospels that's that that among the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were experts at finding loopholes in the law. They would find the loopholes that would be of advantage to them. And this was the kind of loophole they would use. That the wife would make a vow to the Lord, that they would receive some sort of promise from that vow, and then the husband could come along and say, well, wait a second, I, I don't agree with this. And if they had done that in this case... Hannah and Elkanah would have raised that child that God had given them and never would have had to take him to the temple. And the scripture says, according to Numbers 30, there'd be no culpability for that. There'd be complete forgiveness for that. Hannah could have gone back on her word and kept her son according to the law of God. But she did not do that. And the question is why? And I believe the answer to that question is because she was seeking to be faithful to the word that God had given. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 4 tells us this, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you, uh, what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. You see, the heart of God is not for us to find loopholes. <laughs> The heart of God is for us to be people of our word, for our yes to be yes and our no to be no. The heart of God is for us to be a people who have integrity and honesty and who stand on a foundation of the truth. And when we say we're going to do something, we should do it. Our God is a God who takes vows seriously. And therefore, we should be a people who take vows seriously. Marriage vows church membership covenants, business agreements, oaths of office. These are things that we as the people of God should take with the utmost seriousness. 
When we stand before man and we stand before God and we give our word, we should be a people committed to keeping that word. But what does the culture do around us? Well, the culture looks for loopholes. The culture looks for ways out. And we should be a people who do not. We should have nothing to do then with rumors, with lies, with deception. We should be mindful of the ninth commandment, which calls us not to bear false witness against our neighbor. We should uh, seek to obey the words of James, to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And I think in our context today, that would be slow to share things on social media, slow to retweet things. Sometimes we get stuff and we don't even finish reading it before we just put it right back out there with our name on it. We live in this culture today where there seems to be no patience and no desire to take time to find out if something's actually true or not. And especially in the church of God, what a poor witness this is for us as followers of Jesus to participate in the foolishness of the world. We need to be a people of integrity who take our word as seriously as God takes it. We learn this from Hannah. We also learn another lesson, number two there in your outline. The lesson here is don't follow your heart. Follow God's will. I'll explain that more as we go through this verse 23. And I have to tell you that in all my studies this week, that this is a verse I labored over because this is a verse uh, that for many who have written about it, commentated on it, it it lacks some clarity. So I'm going to tell you as I go through here uh, a couple of options for what might be being communicated here and, and what I believe is being communicated here. But you'll have to make your own decision there as to what God's word is saying here in this verse. But what we see... In the context is that Hannah tells her husband again, she's not going to go to the temple until she can leave her child there until he's been weaned. And what we see here again is that Elkanah, not just Hannah, Elkanah, he could have been the one to put it into this arrangement. I mean, he could have said that this is my son, which he was. And not only that, that this was the son that God had given him through the love of his life. The scripture says real clearly, he loved Hannah. And now God had given he and Hannah a child. And so according to the law, he could have said, no, we're not taking this child. But that's not what he says. Note his response there in verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Now, at first glance, what it appears is taking place here is Elkanah is saying to his wife, you made a vow to God. You need to do what's right, do what's good. You just fulfill that vow and the Lord may fulfill his word. It seems like he's being an encouraging husband here who's just kind of encouraging her along to follow God's will. But I find something unsettling about Elkanah's response, especially when we consider Elkanah's previous words to his wife. You'll remember in our study last Lord's Day that when Hannah is just in turmoil and anguish and she's prayed for a child and she's still barren and this other woman, this other wife of her husband is just mocking her and scorning her year after year. You remember her husband's awful advice where he says to her, well, I'm enough for you. (laughs) 
That's terrible advice. Again, we talked last Lord's Day, but as a reminder, husbands, don't say that. It's terrible advice. What he should have been doing is pointing her towards the Lord. What he should have been doing was crying out to the Lord with her. But rather, he just says, well, I'm enough for you. Why would you even need anything else? He gave her terrible advice then. So I think one of two things could be taken place here. Again, years have passed. And so there's certainly room here that Elkanah could have had a change of heart. Now, remember, here's his background. Uh, he marries a woman who he loves. She couldn't get pregnant. So he just goes and uh, carries on a pagan practice of marrying another wife to have children with her. And then when his wife seeks counsel, he gives her terrible counsel. There, there's no picture of godliness in his life. But there's always room for repentance. I mean, thank the Lord that we're gathered here today and we're not who we used to be. And God can change hearts and God does change hearts. And we're evidence of that today. And so Elkanah could have certainly had a change of heart. He could have grown in his faith. And now he could be leading his wife to trust in the Lord and to seek God's will. Or he could be giving her bad advice again. And this is where I tend to lean. The literal translation of verse 23 is this. He looks to his wife and he says, do what is good in your eyes. Do what is good in your eyes. With the exception of one Hebrew word, that is exactly what we read about the time that Samuel was born in in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Hannah, do what is good in your own eyes. And those words, good and right, aren't that far apart. And, and so I lean towards another option that Elkanah was continuing to give his wife really bad advice. And in this culture that said, well, you, you just do what seems right to you. you. You just follow your heart, we might say today. He just gives this worldly advice and it's bad. Hannah, follow your heart. Well, why is that bad advice? Well, I've talked about that phrase before. Fundamentally, I think it's bad advice because our heart deceives us. Prophet Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17, beginning in verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if you read that passage, you find the answer to that question is not us. <laughs> the answer is that the Lord can and that the Lord does. See, friends, our heart can deceive us. It tells us to follow our feelings. And the problem is our feelings change often. And yet we are surrounded by a world and this worldly mantra, just follow your heart. I was reminded of this recently. Uh, one of my children, and I told them I wouldn't point out which one, but one of them purchased a coffee mug. All but one drink coffee, so you're not going to be able to figure this one out probably. But, but had a coffee mug. It's very decorative on the outside. So, you know, you purchase a coffee mug, you look on the outside. One of the other kids uh, was looking at the coffee mug and noticed a little, little print on the inside. Follow your heart. I was trying to think of the marketing on this one. And, you know, you're having a tough morning. You're trying to figure out what to do. You get that cup of coffee. You're searching for wisdom. And then you look down at the bottom of the cup. Follow your I'll follow my heart today. Side note, it's really hard with a Sharpie to mark out follow your heart on the inside of a coffee mug and say, don't follow your heart. Your heart is, your heart is deceptful among all things. <laughs> But, but we, we have this advice, it permeates everywhere. 
It's on our bumper stickers. It's on our t-shirts. It's on things that are wrong. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. And, and again, I'm not saying that the heart is always wrong. The scripture talks about God giving us the desires of our heart. The gospel tells us God gives us a new heart. Our prayers, believers, is that God would align our heart with his heart. But left to itself, this advice of following your heart so often can be in opposition of God's will. Now, the pushback on this might be to look at this verse and say, well, well look at what El Telkana says. Hey, he doesn't just say, do what's good in your own eyes. He says, only may the Lord establish his word. And again, there's a little bit of, it's hard to translate in the Hebrew exactly what he's saying here. The language is a little unique. So again, if you take this counsel, his counsel to mean he, he's really encouraging Hannah to do the right thing, then you would interpret it as he is saying to her, you know, do the right thing, commit uh, to fulfilling your vow, and, and, and just follow God's will, Hannah. That's good. But I think what he's saying here is essentially this. Hannah, follow your heart, do the Lord's will. Almost kind of throwing that on there at the end. Almost as casually as you might say to someone this morning, well, I'm praying for you, and you ain't praying for them. <laughs> How often do you pass somebody, how are you doing today? How are you doing today? And nobody answers the question. Well, we have these little phrases we throw out. And for the people of God, this can be one of them. Well, the Lord bless you. Well, as the Lord wills. And so Elkanah could have just been throwing out a very spiritual mantra to very worldly advice. Follow your heart. May the Lord establish his word and his will. And again, the problem here is that there's times when those two things, following your heart and seeking the Lord's will, there are times when those are in direct opposition to one another. And so the application here, this lesson, is not to follow our heart, but to follow God's will. We read great wisdom from the Proverbs. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That this deceptive heart that can lead us the wrong way all the time. What are we called to do with it as God gives us a new heart? Let us trust the Lord. And what that then means is this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. What do we learn there? We can be deceived. We can be misled. We can pile on to something thinking it's the truth only to find out it was a malicious rumor. It was not the truth. We can run headfast after what we feel and then find out we ran headfast in opposition to the word and the will of God. We are to turn from our understanding and we are to trust in God's ways and fear him. And so despite what I believe was unwise counsel from her husband, this is what we see Hannah do. She trusts in the Lord. Surely, surely there was something in her heart that was telling her, don't take that child to the temple. Surely she had longed for and prayed for that child for so long. And as she held that baby in her hands, her heart at times, her feelings at times, probably led her to think about all types of ways to get out of this vow. But she didn't lean on her own understanding. She acknowledged God's ways and he made her path straight. 
She chose to trust in the Lord with all her heart and not to lean on what her understanding was. And this brings us to a third and final lesson we learn from Hannah's faithfulness. Number three, and perhaps I believe the hardest, surrender everything to God and live for his glory. And so what we see here in verses 24 and 25 is that Samuel gets to this age of weaning and now Hannah brings him to the house of Lord at Shiloh. She makes a, a very gracious offering to the Lord and brings her son to the Lord. And then in verse 26, Hannah reminds Eli, remember years have passed now. And based on what we saw earlier in chapter one, Eli is not the most discerning priest he initially sees her praying and takes her to be a drunken woman. That's what he was likely surrounded by at the temple where there was all types of wickedness. But, but now she reminds him of the encounter they had several years before and her vow and her commitment to fulfill her vow. And then we get to verse 27 to 28. And again, the wording, the translation here can seem a little bit unusual to us, especially the use of this word lent, but it's helpful to look at a more literal translation, although it doesn't flow as well of what's being said here. And so that word lent uh, is actually from the same root Hebrew word that means to ask. And Hannah mentions that, that forms of that word four times in what she says here. And so th this is how you can translate 27 and 28. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is the one that is asked for Yahweh. You see the emphasis there? Hannah is emphatically saying, this is the child I asked for, and you gave me what I asked for. It picks up on Eli's blessing in verse 17 when he first understood Hannah's possession. What did he say? May the God of Israel give you literally the asking which you asked of him. It picks up on the name of Samuel in verse 20. She called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so when we put all this together, what, what the emphasis here is to us is that Hannah had asked the Lord for something and God gave her this child and she is committed to give back to the Lord what he had given to her. There's a picture here of total and complete surrender to the word and will of God that Hannah has asked and Hannah has received and Hannah is willing to give up anything and everything for the glory of God. Richard Phillips in his commentary on this passage says it very clearly this way. And the only reason Hannah had something valuable to offer the Lord was that God had given her the treasure in the first place. But friends, isn't that true of all of us today? <laughs> Anything we give to the Lord, we're just giving back what he's already given us. Now, some of us grew up with this mindset that we're just to give back a percentage of what God's given, you know. And as long as we give back that percentage, we're, we're kind of checking off the box. That, that's not what the picture we see in Scripture. The picture here is this. God has given you everything. And you're called to surrender everything to God. Every talent, 
every treasure, every bit of everything in your life, your family, your, your business, your, your finances, the way you talk, the way you do things, everything you have, it's a gift from God. So use it for His glory. And you cannot glorify God with that which you refuse to let go of. Because if you're holding so tightly to it, that's not something you're surrendering to God, friend. That means it's becoming a God to you. And what we see here in Hannah's life and what we see throughout God's word and what we see throughout the history of the church is the picture we're called to today. To hold things loosely and to surrender them to God and to live for his glory. But we know how to sing it. <laughs> All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender what? All. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We know how to sing it. But the question for us today is do we know how to live it? And we're reminded of this call from God's word. I was reminded of this as well just this last week as I was listening to a sermon that mentioned Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson's a familiar name to some of us and hopefully will be a familiar name to all of us in just a moment. He was the first American Protestant missionary. He set sail for Burma, which is just north of modern-day Thailand, in 1812. But before going, he had some business to attend to. <laughs> Uh, he had surrendered everything. He had given up everything for the glory of God. Again, the first, the first American missionary. There's no track record here. There's no one else to point to. He's, he's charting a new course. He's going to a foreign land in Burma where, where the gospel's never been preached, where there's no believers, no churches, and he's going to leave everything behind. In 1812 to go to Burma and to preach the gospel there. But he had one piece of business to attend to, and that was to ask for the permission to marry the love of his life, Anne. And so he wrote Anne's father asking for her hand in marriage. And I've read this letter multiple times and I have to admit it touches me because I have three daughters and I can only imagine what it would be to receive a letter like this. Now imagine for you what it would be to receive a letter like this. Again, it was written in 1812, so it's very formal, but consider what this man asks of what he hopes to be his future father-in-law. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring and see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of heaven and the glory of God, can you consent to all this 
in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Can you consent? He did. And they married. And that father never sought his daughter again in this world. They left for India, ultimately Burma that year. Both Adnaram Judson and his wife Anne would die eventually of disease while serving on the mission field in Burma. They surrendered everything to live for the glory of God. And they died doing so. But their legacy lives on today. When they arrived in Burma, there were no believers, no churches. By the time they had both passed, there were 100 churches planted and over 8,000 Burmese believers. Today, Burma, modern-day Myanmar, is the, has the third largest number of Baptists worldwide. They number in the millions. Because Adnaram Judson and his wife Anne were faithful to surrender all and to live for his glory. Hannah surrendered everything to God and lived for his glory. Her son would become a great priest over Israel and a significant part of our salvation history. And friend, God calls us to surrender everything as well. And so the question for us is this, what is God calling you to surrender today? What is he calling you and I to let go of? And how can we best live for his glory? And that begins with our response of repentance, of faith, and of prayer. So if you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that someone brought the gospel to our land and someone shared the gospel with our people. We did not come by it naturally. We came by it supernaturally. We came to an understanding of the gospel because someone gave up something to come and preach it to us. And now you've called us to do the same. And the sacrifice that it would take for us today to share the gospel with every man and woman and this child in this community, it pales in the comparison when we consider the sacrifice that families like the Judsons have made. And yet, Lord, that is our call today. We are called to take the gospel to our neighbor and to the nations. And we're called to surrender everything to you and for you. So help us, Lord, to hold the things you've given us rather loosely. Help us, Lord, to trust you. And help us to look forward to that day of glory that is to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.